The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. When the House of Representatives voted to ban federal funding for Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest reproductive health care provider, they expected to go unchallenged. After all, this was just one of hundreds of anti-woman bills proposed since January 2011 and before that, of course. But this time was different. This time, people across the country stood up in defiance. 5,000 turned out in New York City, 1,400 in Boston, 1,500 in Austin, Texas, and thousands more in dozens of other cities. And many of these protests also cross-pollinated with the slut walks, which were amazing marches against sexual violence that have swept the world in the past several months. These exciting and inspiring signs of a real fight back against sexism and for reproductive justice haven't just materialized out of thin air. This new wave of activism has been a direct response to the most aggressive and barbaric attack on women's bodies, sexualities, and reproductive freedom many of us have seen in our entire lifetimes. Many of these protests are being organized by first-time activists and a generation of young women and men who are fed up with the literally lifetime assault on women's bodies and rights. In a matter of weeks and months, people who may have once considered themselves single-issue activists around abortion rights or against victim blaming are beginning to grapple with bigger questions about where this war on women is coming from and how we can truly fight back and win. I think a single phrase on the Slutwalk Facebook page captures this sentiment pretty perfectly, in all caps, because we've had enough. And to add a little bit of my personal touch to this phrase, it's about fucking time. <laughs> it's about time that we take to the streets in protest against the way women's lives and ability to freely express our sexuality has been under attack for decades. It's about time we reject the idea that somehow the best we can do is compromise away our rights. It's about time that we build an unapologetic movement that puts women's lives and stories back into the foreground and stops letting politicians shape the debate for us. As it is, the, the dominant discussion in Washington and within the mainstream pro-choice organizations has been focused for decades on how to find common ground with the anti-abortion movement. <laughs> right, I know, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Time Magazine journalist Andrew Sullivan spelled this, out, this strategy out pretty clearly in his article, The Case for Compromise on Abortion. As he describes, something very unusual is happening to some dem Democrats and pro-choice abortion activists. They're getting smarter about their strategy. For years, they've harped on and on about a woman's right to choose while failing to capture in any meaningful way the moral qualms many of us have about abortion itself. He applauds abstinence-only education, miseducation, um, and what he perceives as cultural shifts towards sexual restraint among young women, and concludes his article by asking, what's the downside? I can't see any. Uh, so, so how is it possible for a right-winger like Sullivan, who proudly describes himself as pro-life, we won't even get into what that means, and opposed to Roe v. Wade to be so gleeful about the strategies of pro-choice organizations? He's not the only one. The entire anti-abortion right is thrilled, not because they are meeting the pro-choice movement on its terms, but because the entire compromise is framed by an idea you've probably all heard before. 
we all want to reduce abortions. Uh, the fact that anti-abortion people like Sullivan and others find this strategy so exciting should be a major red flag to our side. Uh, there are two sides, and we have nothing in common with the other side. Uh, and <laughs> I breathe, I don't know. And only one side has gained from this common ground strategy, the side that wants to fully strip us of our reproductive rights as a funda fundamental aspect of controlling our lives. Um, we need a national movement built from the grassroots, a movement that is fiercely unapologetic, that does not tail its demands to the Democratic Party, <laughs> and which puts women's stories and lives back to the center of the discussion where they actually belong. Um, since January alone, uh, over 350 anti-abortion bills have been introduced. That's like growing by the week, day, I don't know. And even more horrifying than the number of these bills alone is their actual content. Um, if it passes, H.R. 3, the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act, will permanently limit public funding for abortion. For the record, uh, federal funding for abortions for women on Medicaid and the military and many federal employees is already banned through the Hyde Amendment. Uh, which has been revoted into law every year since 1977. One aspect, right, um, of HR3, which was eventually dropped because it was so horrifying, uh, even attempted to redefine rape as forcible rape, as if some forms of rape, like date rape, um, are consensual. Uh, HR3 also includes a provision calling for the IRS to interrogate women who are survivors of rape or incest and seeking an abortion. This would mean that if a woman wanted to receive a tax credit for medical costs related to her abortion, she would have to prove by contemporaneous uh, written documentation, meaning written at the time of the attack, uh, that it was incest or rape um, or that her life was in danger. This also means that unless she's seeking an abortion under these circumstances, she won't receive the aforementioned tax credits. Um, as egregious as this bill is, it isn't just the outcome of a Republican-led Congress, as we've been led to believe. Uh, this bill and other restrictions to abortion are just a sharper edge of the same bipartisan attack on abortion and reproductive rights for women that has been that has existed for decades. And yet, Democratic Congresswoman Barbara Boxer said HR3 breaks faith with, with a decades-long bipartisan compromise, and it risks the hells and lives of women. I don't really know what she's talking about because this really shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. It's the natural outcome of years of compromise and retreat on abortion rights. Um, so what has this compromise actually looked like? Um, Barack Obama, the supposedly pro-choice president, has taken from the last supposedly pro-choice president, Bill Clinton, and done absolutely nothing to defend abortion rights. In fact, the Obama administration uh, used abortion rights as a bargaining chip in its health care reform bill in 2010, and in the process ceded massive ground to the right. As a refresher, under language written by anti-abortion Democrat, Senator Ben Nelson, women could purchase insurance that covers abortion, but they would have to write two separate checks for each premium, um, right? Uh, one to pay for a special writer to cover potential abortion care, and another to pay for the rest of her coverage. Apparently, this disgusting comp compromise on women's lives was not enough. Obama also professed his support for the Hyde Amendment, which he campaigned on opposing. Yeah, I like all the hissing. Keep bringing it. <laughs> 
Still, many of the mainstream pro-choice organizations endorse and actually campaign for Obama with the argument that Republicans would do even worse. And it's kind of hard to imagine what that would actually look like. <laughs> because as it is, abortion today is technically legal, but it has never been more inaccessible, primarily to poor, working-class women and women of color. Today, 88% of all U.S. counties have no abortion provider whatsoever. In South Dakota, it's actually easier now to own a gun than to get an abortion, which is especially frightening when you think about the campaign of violence waged against abortion providers today. And the anti-abortion movement has always used violence and threats as a means to police and control abortion providers and women seeking abortions. In the early 1990s, a group called Life Dynamics sent a 14-page quote-unquote joke book called Bottom Feeder to 35,000 medical students. One of the so-called jokes included in this was, what do you do if you find yourself in a room with Hitler, Mussolini, and an abortionist, and you have only two bullets? The answer, shoot the abortionist twice. Each person receiving this mailing is also told the anti-abortion movement knows where to find you. Abortion providers are, to put it bluntly, literally bluntly, literally dying out, both because of the threat of violence posed by anti-abortion activists and because abortion providers have become more and more isolated and ghettoized from mainstream medicine. So to look at what that means today, more than half of all abortion providers are over the age of 65. Um, wow. And yeah, and only 12% of OBGYN residency training programs nationally require training in first trimester abortions, despite the fact that abortion is the most commonly performed OBGYN procedure and it's an incredibly simple and safe medical procedure when people are actually trained to perform it correctly. So two-thirds of medical students in the United States, thank you, spend less than 30 minutes total learning about abortion. By the way, Viagra and infertility retreat treatments require more class time in the United States medical schools than abortion and contraception combined. Whoa. Cool. 95% of all abortions are performed in private clinics, and only about 2% of all abortions are provided in hospitals in the United States. And the violence committed against abortion providers and clinic staff continues. In addition to the late Dr. Tiller, one of only three late-term abortion providers in the United States before he was killed, seven other clinic workers have been murdered in the U.S. since Roe, and there have been 17 attempted murders. Since 2008 alone, clinics have reported 298 cases of trespassing, 20 death threats, and 27 cases of stalking. Anti-abortion activists not only harass abortion providers at their workplaces, but they actually even visit them at their homes. As abortion provider Warren Hearn described, quote, as my life is now, the windows cannot be uncovered at night. Sometimes I look into the homes of my neighbors and see them moving about and relaxing with their families. My office is a fortress of steel fences and bulletproof windows, and my home has become a hiding place from which I emerge and hope that I will not be the next assassin's target. This is healthcare. And this May, in Madison, Wisconsin, where Governor Scott Walker recently cut $1 million from Planned Parenthood on the state budget, 
uh, anti-abortion activist Ralph Lang was caught just before launching an, a killing spree at a Madison Planned Parenthood. So these ideas have gained a lot of legitimacy, and I think the arguments condemning the supposed immorality of abortion have not just been contained within the ultra-right wing, but they've actually reached the legislative level. So, for example, there's a Nebraska law now um, that's being proposed that actually rebrands the murder of abortion providers as justifiable homicide. So it's little surprise that for the first time since Roe v. Wade, 47% of Americans support a pro-life, quote-unquote, view, while only 45% consider themselves pro-choice. The sharpest decrease in pro-choice sentiment is among young people aged 18 to 29, and that's been a trend over the past 10 years as pro-choice sentiment has steadily declined. In order to understand how much how we've lost so much ground, both ideologically and legislatively, I think we need to examine what the strategies have been of the so-called pro-life movement and the pro-choice movement, respectively. So just to say that's the last time that you'll hear Jenny or I refer to these anti-woman bigots as pro-life, because that term could be awesome. couldn't be further from the truth. So let's start with the anti-abortion movement. They have never backed down or apologized for their actions, which seek to prevent women from accessing essential medical care and information about our bodies, our sexualities, and our lives. In the years that the pro-choice movement was on the retreat, which we'll talk about in a bit, anti-choice organizations were in the streets, organizing walks for life and pickets outside abortion clinics. They have set up literally thousands of crisis pregnancy centers, which people haven't heard of them. They're these deceptive, uh, quote-unquote, abortion alternative uh, counseling centers with the goal of coercing women into choosing life-affirming decisions. Today, there are actually roughly twice as many crisis pregnancy centers, or CPCs, as there are real abortion clinics in the United States. And they're actually federally funded, even under Barack Obama, through abstinence-only education. $50 million every year is given, and there are also tons of money that's given on the state level to these, you know, deceptive clinics. And with billboards and advertising, they're far more visible than abortion clinics. And even on the legislative level, they're actually being considered on equal footing and some, in some cases even more favorable um, than real abortion clinics and abortion providers. And so, for example, the North Carolina Women's Right to Know Act, which is actually not the first one of these they have passed in Minnesota and several other states, um, sounds pretty innocent, but it actually mandates a woman seeking an abortion to, first of all, wait 24 hours, which provides huge obstacles for low-income women who would have to take an additional day off work, um, pay for child care for an extra day if she already has children, and if she's one of the 33% of women who doesn't live in counties with abortion providers, that would mean driving possibly across state lines if that's not already illegal, um, or somewhere within the state, which would mean more cost for transportation and a bigger burden. But this law also requires the physician giving the abortion, if she is able to access it, to give women false information. It mandates mandates the physician to give women false information about the risk, risks associated with abortion, including saying that there's a link between abortion and breast cancer, and that abortion can later on cause infertility, all of which has been proven medically inaccurate time and time again. And it doesn't stop there. The physician and or staff are then required to emphasize adoption as an alternative and give the women a list of another quote-unquote resources uh, for further information. The list of resources includes places like like birthright, not to be confused with 
the Israeli birthright, although I wouldn't be surprised if they got together. Um, birthright, in this context, is a national anti-abortion organization whose motto is, every woman has the right to give birth and every child has the right to be born. And by right, they mean a God-given duty. <laughs> These are not medical clinics. They are psychological battlefields run by Christian anti-abortion organizations that lure in women in unplanned pregnancies and lie to them about their real options. And the purpose is to pre prevent a woman from having an abortion by any means necessary. So they inform, another quote-unquote, women that they will likely acquire post-abortion stress syndrome, another made-up uh, <laughs> symptom that they, that they have fabricated. Um, whose symptoms include fear of failure, fear of being judged, fear of making decisions, fear of taking risks, wow. feeling of defeat, feeling unworthy, depression, guilt, shame, panic attacks, addictions, suicidal thoughts, sexual dysfunction, sense of loss, and more. So, yes, eating disorders. On that basis, apparently even people who haven't had abortions are suffering from post-abortion stress syndrome. <laughs> CPCs use false information and guilt uh, to coerce women into carrying their pregnancy to term, and they even employ uh, women's male partners to, in order to do this. So, for example, um, yep, uh, Day, uh, a crisis pregnancy center in North Carolina called Daybreak um, has a little page on their, on their website called Four Guys. Cool. And here's a little tidbit of information to men whose partners may be considering abortion. Quote, it's hard to realize that women can choose abortion without the permission of the baby's father. Many women who have had abortions report that they were waiting for their boyfriends or husbands to stop them. Some even say that they sat on the abortion table hoping the father of their baby would rush through the door to rescue me and take me away somewhere safe. She needs your friendship now more than ever. Our society says that abortion is a woman's choice, but remember that abortion doesn't erase a mistake. It only adds new ones. These centers are not only against abortion, they're also against premarital sex. So Daybreak, for example, gives us some really helpful sex advice. Um, they let us know that abstinence is the only 100% effective guarantee that, among other things, you will be spared the heartache and pain that sex often brings to an unmarried person. <laughs> their sex advice. This is great. Women, women don't realize that they deserve the best sex ever, and that exists inside a relationship where a man has made a commitment to her in marriage. So it's obvious that these centers don't actually believe women possess the mental capacity to make decisions for themselves about their own bodies, but in case you still weren't convinced, try this gem from a senior fellow at the National Pro-Life Action Center defending crisis pregnancy centers' deceptive tactics. He says, quote, why conclude that facts and sonograms by themselves are sufficient to reach unstable abortion-minded clients? I think just the opposite is true. In a visual postmodern culture, using graphic pictures to change the way a client feels about abortion before using facts to change how she thinks and ultimately behaves on abortion makes perfect sense. This is not manipulation. It's meeting the client at her level. Aww. Yeah. So you can tell what they think about women more generally. 
Um, Daybreak Crisis Pregnancy Center has its own YouTube channel where its directors reach out to young girls and women to participate in its girls-only after-school program to spread their mission of abstinence and the word of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and this is my favorite part. The name of this abstinence-only, Jesus-loving program is No Regrets, No Apologies. No. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that could not be true. The right wing strategy has been to never compromise in their attack on abortion rights. So why the hell should we compromise? And why on earth should we seek common ground with these people who want to control the lives of women? on the air quotes, but I think y'all get why. Um, the consequences of recent legislation have already become all too apparent to those it actually targets, um, which are not those who are making the decisions. Abortion has made a swift return back to back alleys. According to a recent survey by Reproductive Health Matters, nearly 5% of women in abortion clinics had attempted to self-induce. Um, and they're in a clinic, so those are, that's usually the place that women who self-induce are trying to avoid, so that's obviously presumably much higher. Um, of the women who had performed DIY abortions, one-third cited financial concerns as their motivation, big surprise. And both of these studies were conducted prior to January 2011. Uh, new bills restricting abortion access will have dire consequences for working class and poor women. You hear these legends of coat hanger abortions, but there are no coat hangers in Iraq. I looked. Uh, the woman who said this is a 26-year-old former Marine sergeant who chooses to go by the name Amy. The constitution she supposedly defends doesn't apply to her because TRICARE, military health insurance, does not cover abortions. Um, she was sent home when a military psychiatrist determined that she was too psychologically unstable. Uh, she responded uh, better than I think I'm capable of doing. Uh, she said, they convinced themselves that anyone who would do a self-abortion is crazy. It's not a crazy thing. It's something that rational thinking women do because they have no options. Um, this is the face of this so-called compromise. Amy is just one of the faces of, of what compromise looks like um, concretely. Roe v. Wade uh, presents too difficult a barrier to recriminalize abortion outright, but that doesn't mean that abortions performed outside of the medical system are safe. Uh, to make matters worse, many of these women have not only been forced to resort to unsafe me measures to end pregnancies, they've been arrested for doing so. 38 states, um, which is an alarming number, have feticide laws, and therefore these women can be made convicted felons for doing what they have the right to do lawfully and safely in a doctor's office. Uh, the defense of fetal rights should be seen as an active attempt to create a stepping stone toward outlawing abortion altogether. Uh, these laws don't just criminalize women who self-induce. They open the floodgates and hold women legally responsible for a miscarriage if it can be proven that it was a result of her reckless beha behavior, um, which, is, which includes but is not limited to drug or alcohol use during pregnancy, making women with alcohol and drug addictions uh, much less likely to seek uh, help due to fear of arrest. Uh, these laws specifically target women of color, uh, not due to higher rates of drug use, but because infant toxicology screenings are more likely to be performed in poor communities and communities of color. 
fetal homicide laws serve the exact purpose the anti-abortion zealots would like them to, which is to relegate women to being baby makers and to place the well-being of a fetus above that of a woman's actual life. In doing so, they're effectively able to distract us with notions of who is fit to be a mother and who isn't, something reflected historically in attempts to restrict motherhood and fertility for uh, certain populations, because anti-abortion restrictions have never, ever really been about preserving. They have always been about controlling women's sexuality um, and reproductive lives, whether by taking away our right to an abortion or our right to have a child. According to the Indigenous and Latina Women and Children's Human Rights News from the Americas, an estimated 30% of Puerto Rican women um, and 25 to 40% of American Indian women were sterilized without being informed and without consenting in the 1970s. Uh, a reported 25,000 Indian women had been uh, permanently sterilized within Indian health service uh, facilities through 1975 alone. It doesn't get any less disgusting. 20% of married black women had been sterilized according to a 1970 study, which is three times uh, that of their white counterparts. Um, I know they're really like alarming numbers, but it's really just scratching the surface. Sterilization is something that is much more complicated and we definitely don't, uh, the history of it, we don't have time to get into, uh, but just know that it goes beyond what we were able to mention in the talk. When abortion was illegal, some women actually were able to access abortions from hospitals. To do so, however, a woman had to present her case to a panel of physicians and psychiatrists, all men, surprise, um, whose job it was to answer the question, is this woman psychologically fit to become a mother? In order to pass this test, many women claimed insanity and developed time-consuming backstories to obtain the procedure. The few women who passed the test and had these abortions performed were given this right only under the condition that they would be permanently sterilized at the same time. The argument has always been that women who seek abortions and thereby abandon their life's purpose um, are clearly insane and unfit to parent. From the very beginning of anti-abortion activism, we've seen a desperate attempt to control certain populations as an attempt to maintain greater political control and influence. This makes the tactics currently being employed by the pro-choice pro movement um, by the anti-choice movement, all the more unbelievable, because while still racist and divide and conquer oriented at their core, um, it is so in like a completely different, uh, twisted, albeit equally disgusting way. Billboards reading, the most dangerous place for an African-American is in the womb, went up in Soho around the corner from it, um, an NYC Planned Parenthood in February, strategically during Black History Month. This disgusting and quite obvious attempt to race bait and divide our side elicited protest and ultimately a victory for our side. The advertisement was taken down days after being put up. But, but in June, the attack on women expanded to include Latinas as responsible for committing genocide against our own people as well. The bilingual billboard put up in Los Angeles by Latino Partnership for Conservative Principles, which hurts to say, by the way, uh, reads, El lugar más peligroso para un Latino es el vientre de su madre. The most dangerous place for a Latino is in the womb. English only unless you're promoting like really harmful garbage, right? Um, this billboard pretty much serves as a direct accusation and finger pointing to Latinas as those responsible for this 
air quotes, genocide. Um, Miriam, a blogger from Feministing, effectively ca captured my initial gut reaction. Uh, quote, my, I'm angry that my community is being targeted, but I'm not more angry than I was when I saw the first billboards attacking African-American women. I already felt attacked by those original billboards because these tactics aren't actually about the communities they target. They are instead about attacking abortion, trying to race bait, divide the pro-choice community along racial lines. They implicitly make women of color the culprit, the ones responsible for this myth of genocide in our communities. Whether it's African-American women or Latinas or indigenous women, they are simply using women of color to forward their anti-choice agenda. Regardless of whether they are attacking your community, they are attacking all of us and we need to fight back. manipulative attempt to undermine our choice under the guise of false compassion for both children and women of color. Uh, so it's extremely like, doubly insulting. Uh, contrary to their argument, there's no aggressive abortion marketing strategy targeting minority communities. It's not a conspiracy that there are higher abortion rates among women of color considering that Big surprise, we have higher rates of unintended pregnancy and are disproportionately low income, thus unable to afford prescription birth control methods and shockingly children. Um, in fact, <laughs> a 2010 USDA study estimated that raising a baby born in 2010 would cost around $300,000 to raise until age 18. That's like, that number is like make-believe to me. Like, <laughs> um, this does not factor in college tuition, which pushes this estimate to around $500,000, and it was like forever going up. Um, whatever the case, it should be made clear that we don't need anyone to protect us from ourselves by restricting our access to safe and legal abortions, whatever our reasons for higher abortion rates. Um, the important thing to remember is that it's not anyone else's business. The bottom line That's needs right. to be that after years of being virtually ignored, we're not going to be fooled by their racist propaganda and hate masquerading as genuine concern, nor will we be for one second think that the state of Arizona and Jan fucking Brewer are legitimately concerned about defending civil rights by prohibiting abortions based on ethnicity and gender. Get real, right? Um, just like comparing higher abortion rates among women of color to genocide, this is like a manufactured make-believe problem that only exists in the rights fantasy world. Uh, luckily, these tactics have seemed to backfire. It's created a more widespread sense of racial unity and forced activists to actually take a critical look to the issue of race and abortion, something that hasn't necessarily been absent from the struggle, but has certainly been marginalized. The overwhelming reaction of most pro-choice activists was that women of color, just like all women, are to be trusted. To be clear, the most dangerous place for people of color is in a world where capitalists roam and rule freely. End of story. <laughs> my target audience, but if any of you have a bunch of money, uh, you can put that on a billboard. <laughs> um, you don't have to quote me directly, but <laughs> but um, like the hypocrisy has kind of been laid bare, because after all, are these not the same people who just last month voted to cut $47 billion, 10%, from domestic programs to pay for more defense spending? Are these not the people who are now debating whether to pass a food and farm spending bill that cuts aid for low-income pregnant women and their children and slashes overseas food 
uh, aid program to about one-third below this year's funding. Programs on the chopping block include Special Supplemental uh, Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, otherwise known as WIC, uh, Commodity Supplemental Food Program, both of which help low-income people get nutritional food, Food Safety Programs, Childhood Obesity Initiative, and Food Aid for Senior Citizens. All in all, uh, these cuts will prevent hundreds of thousands of people from accessing nutritional food or food at all, creating what I would argue are much more dangerous circumstances. This should make the hypocrisy of their argument quite clear. Scapegoating women has, been, has redirected the blame, and instead of holding politicians and wealthy executives accountable for creating the economic crisis, the finger is then pointed at careless um, and sexually impure women. But since this talk is about building a new movement for abortion rights, we can't actually let the official pro-choice movement off the hook for these concessions. As early as the late 1970s, mainstream pro-choice organizations began to shift their message away from advocating for abortion rights as a means to support women's rights to adopting vague rhetoric and conservative strategies to appeal to moderate and conservative voters. For the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League, which I think pretty well exemplifies this overall shift in strategy. So in the late 70s, instead of focusing on women's rights and that kind of rhetoric, NARAL's political strategists, which they probably spent a lot of money on, began to criticize abortion restrictions as an, enc an encroachment by big government on tradition, family, privacy, and property. Sounds like a winning strategy, right? So by the late 1980s, their new, s their new, slogan, was, their new slogan was, who decides, you or them? A vague enough slogan opened up to many interpretations as to who the you is. Was it women? Was it families, teenagers, parents, medical boards, doctors, ministers, the state? I mean, it's, it's not clear. In 1989, NARAL issued a talking points memo to staff members instructing them not to use phrases like, a woman's body is her own to control and to instead talk about privacy. And any mention of women's rights were outright eliminated from this discussion. Even the decision, and I think this is really important, to frame the abortion rights debate as an issue of choice was actually a political decision that was reflected in NARAL's change of name um, from NARAL to NARAL Pro-Choice America. And that was a deliberate decision to widen, quote unquote, the audience of reproductive rights to include conservatives. Um, so the movement became pro-choice instead of being for abortion rights, sexual rights, and insisting on women's bodily autonomy. As Marlene Gerber-Fried writes in a really excellent article um, titled 10 Reasons to to rethink reproductive choice, quote, pro-choice politics were framed defensively by what was considered winnable rather than by a positive vision of reproductive freedom. Instead of Roe v. Wade being the first step towards achieving full reproductive control for women, defending it became the end goal, unquote. Because of the shift from grassroots to electoral politics, between 1992 and 2004, there were actually no major abortion rights rallies in the United States. And there's a famous quotation, Hillary Clinton spoke at the... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, spoke at the March for Women's Lives in 2004, and she said, quote, we didn't have to march for 12 long years, her husband's uh, administration, because we had a government that respect, respected the rights of women. So clearly her assessment of this time period was a little different from ours, because actually Bill Clinton was sitting in the White House when the biggest attacks on women's access to abortion to that point, including parental consent laws, including these uh, pre-abortion counseling, and, and et cetera, et cetera, and scores of states were taking place. And this was the same period when the mainstream pro-choice line went from abortion on demand and without apology to keep abortion safe, legal, and rare. 
and the legislative and ideological concessions made by Democrats and unchallenged by any national movement during the Clinton years opened the way for the current Republican-led attack on abortion rights. Uh, today, the notion that abortion is something that should be apologized for rather than fought for actively is considered a given among the pro-choice mainstream. Take Hillary, Hillary Clinton <laughs> on the issue. Abortion is a sad, even tragic choice to many, many women. There is no reason why government cannot do more to educate, inform, and provide assistance so that the choice guaranteed under our Constitution either does not ever have to be exercised or only in very rare circumstances. Now, I'm not super crazy about the Constitution, but imagine this type of logic applied to any of our other constitutionally protected rights. Um, like, free speech is great, but we would like if no one ever used it. <laughs> <laughs> like Obama, argue that both anti-abortion and abortion rights activists can agree that we all want to reduce the number of abortions and should instead emphasize birth control to stem the problem. And while we should fight for birth control as a fundamental right, we should not fight for it on the basis that abortion is something to be reduced. Similarly, while comprehensive education has always been a priority of the pro-choice movement, our goal should not be to reduce abortions, but educating women so that it's understood that there's absolutely nothing to feel guilty about and presenting her with real options. To neglect this would to be to neglect this would be to treat abortion as some sort of abstract ideological debate as opposed to something that affects our lives in real and concrete ways. Planned Parenthood, for instance, managed to only use the word abortion twice in their official statement criticizing HR3. It was challenging for me to not use abortion in like every sentence of this talk, so I'm not really sure how they pulled that one off, um, other than talking about women's uh, healthcare in very vague terms, like serious health problems from a pregnancy. You mean like a pregnancy itself? Like, <laughs> that could be pretty problematic for some women, right? <laughs> so, um, we don't have that much time to go into this aspect of it, but I hope people will bring this up more in the discussion because abortion has not always been presented as this morally repugnant, um, awful, terrible thing. And I think it's important to look at the history of criminalization of abortion to learn that um, because really until the 19th, late 19th century, abortion was freely practiced um, and was not illegal in the United States. And it was actually a means to control women and to control midwives and female health um, healthcare practitioners. Um, that that uh, was the reason for, part of the reason for the criminalization. Under capitalism, restrictions on abortion have always been a means to enforce highly conservative gender roles and sexuality and seek to uphold and preserve the near-mythical traditional nuclear family. And I think it's also a strategy to distract people from the real issues at bay. So, for instance, right now, with um, the funding that's being cut from Planned Parenthood, it's, oh, women need to keep their legs closed, women need to be more responsible, and what was the term before, sexually... Um uh, I don't remember. One Which of the, one? Yeah. <laughs> uh, be less careless, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's the reason, you know, in order, in order for us to fix the deficit, like, we need to, that's what we need to control. Um, huh. So I think uh, it's important to remember um, how abortion rights were won in the first place, which was actually by a fighting women's movement in the late 1960s and early 70s. Support for abortion rights in 1973, the year that the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade made abortion legal throughout the United States, stood at about 
amazing, opinion on abortion as well as a whole range of issues related to women's rights was shaped by the women's liberation movement of the 1970s and its slogan, free abortion, on demand, no apologies. Abortion rights were won by the women's liberation movement of the 60s and 70s because they built a grassroots movement in the streets that didn't apologize. And in the process, it shattered for many people the idea that women couldn't fight for themselves. It also shattered the idea that women can't be allowed in public spaces speaking about their lives. And I think we've actually gone back to a point where we can't even talk about that in many circumstances. So demanding free abortion on demand, free child care, and an end to forced sterilization as some of their main demands. Activists organize public abortion speakouts, talking about their experiences with abortion. Um, protest consciousness raising committees and a national day of action in 1970. And by 1976, after a surge of public activism, 65% of Americans actually endorsed picketing and protesting as necessary tactics for women to achieve equality. The National Organization for Women, now, which had previously focused narrowly on electoral and legal strategies, sound familiar, adopted a more radical outlook as a result of this self-activity of women. So even these mainstream organizations were able to shift more to the left. And I think this is really telling of how powerful a grassroots movement could actually be in that respect. Because now, in the late 1970s, adopted a slogan that I think is actually pretty fitting for today. It was, out of the mainstream and into the revolution. Okay. This is the kind of movement that we, need to, that we need in order to win. We need a movement that doesn't apologize, that puts the question of access front and center, and that adopts a politics of solidarity with an understanding of how fighting for abortion rights should fit into a broader framework of reproductive justice. And I think real reproductive freedom for all women requires that all people, regardless of race, gender, class, age, sexual orientation, disability, marital status, etc., be able to avoid unwanted childbearing through the use of contraception and abortion, and also be able to bear children without being stigmatized, without being impoverished, or compelled to give up their education, their employment, or even their children if they're deemed unfit. This is a battle for self-determination. Mm -hmm. It's about control over our bodies and reproductive choices, but it's also about the ability to determine the broader conditions in which we live our lives. As everyone's favorite historian Howard Zinn said, the right of yeah, okay, um, the right of a woman to an abortion did not depend on the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade. It was won before that decision all over the country by grassroots agitation and and that force states to recognize the right. If American people insist on it, act on it, no Supreme Court decision can take it away. So we should insist on it. <laughs> The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.